My name is Tom. I'm an alcoholic. And by the grace of God, which has come to me through what I consider to be the finest and most effective life-changing program on the face of the earth, Alcoholics Anonymous, I have not had a drink since July 20th of 1965, and I'm very grateful for that. I thought the sister's prayer was a work of art also, and I asked her for it. And she gave it to me, so I've got what I came to Minnesota for. I don't know what you all are going to get. I do know it's Sunday morning, and it's about 11 o'clock, and I'm a Southern Baptist. And being a Baptist is like being an alcoholic. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Once a Baptist, always a Baptist. Both illnesses are terminal, (laughs) but recovery is possible through this program. So I'm a recovering Southern Baptist also. I loved John last night. John's learned a secret that I've learned over the past few years, and it's this. If I can't laugh at myself, I am not taking myself seriously enough. And there's a lot of laughter in this program. That's a beautiful thing, because I cried for so long. And I always cried for me. The change in the program is that now, sometimes, I may cry for you. That's God's gift. And some of the funniest things I've ever heard in my life actually happened to me in this program. There was a guy that I sponsored whose name was Doug. And Doug went on a speaking trip with me one time, and we were in the Atlanta airport. And this was back when the braless look had first come out. Some of you may remember that. It's routine now, but it wasn't routine then. And we were in the Atlanta airport having a cup of coffee and a hot dog, and along came this gal, and she was the most braless thing I have ever seen in my life. And we transfixed our attention on her and watched her as far as we could. And when the front disappeared, we watched the rear because it was nice, too. And Doug turned to me and he said, Tom, that woman sure did remind me of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, why? He said, man, she's self-supporting through her own contribution. (laughs) I've never forgotten that story. It's a true one, too. I have my security blanket with me this morning. The book, Alcoholics Anonymous, which to me is much more than a book. It's a kit of spiritual tools. And within its covers is every tool that I'm ever going to need to be a sober human being. And what's more, within the kit of spiritual tools are the directions for using those tools. If I don't open the kit and use the tools... I'm not going to any length. If I follow the directions and use the tools, they work. If I do not, they don't. I have here a system which promises me many beautiful things. It promises me sobriety, yes, in its lowest form. I don't have to drink anymore. But it promises me that I'll be happy and joyous and free. And that to me is sobriety. And it's a beautiful book. And of all the books that have been written on alcoholism, it's still the definitive work on illness and recovery. There are lots of books that deal with the psychology of alcoholism, the emotional makeup of alcoholics, and psychiatrists, good ones, deal with us, and clinical psychologists deal with us, and they can offer us support, and they can help us somewhat to 
rearrange our lives. But this program heals us. And no psychiatrist and no psychologist can offer us the healing of this program because this program, to me, is God's specific gift to specific people like you and me. And I've become convinced that when there is a given problem on the face of this earth, God sends an answer which addresses that problem directly. And he sends it through the most unlikely people. I used to think I had to learn about God from people who were in the clergy. And my teachers in this program, that the people that have taught me about the life of the Spirit, is the biggest collection of mongrels you've ever seen in your life. My sponsor was a playboy lawyer. I've learned more about living the spiritual way of life from an 82-year-old machinist who on the same anniversary that I have for sobriety celebrated his 44th. The man has worked the program so long he no longer has to talk about it. He is the program. It's in him. And then there was a Texas millionaire named Bob W. who's dead now. The only man in the world who ever called me sugar and got away with it. And then there was Tom P. from up in New York, whose tapes were required listening to me. And my favorite teacher, who is also gone now, was a guy named Chuck, who I loved five years before I met him. And then there was Grumpy, who you're going to hear about. He's dead, too. And I was saying somebody, to someone not long ago, they're all going. They're all dying. They're not here. And this person, who is my ex-wife, said to me, as long as you're alive, so are they. And God, I hope that's the truth. Everything I'm going to say to you this morning, I have learned from those teachers. Everything. The unlikely bunch of spiritual mongrels, which I found when I got here. I'm one of them too now. I've been sober over 20 years. It's hard for me to believe that uh, I am now an old-timer. And I find myself behaving like some of these old-timers now. And saying very direct and blunt things to the people that I sponsor. Don't confuse a sponsor with a counselor, please. They're not the same. And I'll talk about that later. I don't talk much about drinking when I talk. I talk a lot about my inner states of being, my attitudes, my thinking, my feelings. I believe in Alcoholics Anonymous, sometimes we spend much too much time talking about external things. And one of the things that kept me drinking long after I should have stopped was the idea that I was different from all other alcoholics. I'm a nitpicker, a congenital nitpicker. If there's something wrong with you, I can find it out in 30 seconds. I have an awful hard time finding out anything right about you and also about me. And we're all different here. We're male and female, old and young, educated, not so educated, rich and poor, all different professions where people that the book says normally would not mix. And yet, you're my family. And in a very real sense, you're me and I'm you. When we get away from those externals, Celeste, and get down to the inner person, and alcoholism is an internal kind of a thing. I believe that with all my heart. And it doesn't matter how much you've drunk. 
And it doesn't matter how long you've drunk. And it doesn't matter how young you are, because pain has no chronology. Suffering does not go by age. And what I'm going to try to share with you this morning is the inside of me. Because I'm you, and you're me. And if you're not an alcoholic, and you happen to be able to identify, I've learned in this program that we're not that different. What sets me apart is that I'm allergic to alcohol. That's it. Many Alanons have come up to me after I've talked, Karen, and said, Tom, you described me. And many, many times we marry those who are mirror images of ourselves. We're not so unique. I hate to tell you that, but we're not. First word in this book, in the foreword, is the basic word in the life of the Spirit. And that word is we. The first word in the first step of Alcoholics Anonymous is we. The first word in the first tradition of Alcoholics Anonymous is the derivative, Anita, of that word, our. Our common welfare should come first. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol. And I see this is very important to me because I'm a person who suffered and suffers from an I illness. My I, my ego, separated me, isolated me, made me different, made me lonely, made me very sick. I had no relationships. And I come into a program that stresses one two-letter word, we, and God, it's magic. And I look at the spiritual teachers of whom I have become a big fan. Jesus, Buddha, Lao Tzu, Moses, Zephaniah. And you know, they talked an awful lot about the spiritual way of life. And they talked an awful lot in that life about the relationship with God, but they talked even more about the relationship that we have with one another. To every one of these teachers, John, there was a horizontal relationship, me and you, and there was a vertical relationship, God and me. And these guys were strange guys, it seems. They said some very strange and weird things sometimes. And it seems to me they always stressed things like horizontal relationships. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. One of them, a carpenter, even said, if you're on your way to church and you remember you have anything against your brother, better go straighten it out first and then go to church. Another one said, how can you love God who you can't see if you can't get along with your brother that you can't see? And the spiritual way of life, to me, goes like this, and this program seems to go like this. I reach out for you. I make amends to you. I ask God to remove the things that are blocking me from you. And somewhere along the line, as the horizontal relationship is being established, God comes. And the spiritual teachers teach me that in that intersection of the horizontal and the vertical is the whole meaning of life. God, it's so simple and it's so beautiful. If I'm right horizontally, God's there. If I'm not, he isn't. And I have learned this truth. When I'm having an awfully hard time with my relationship with God, I'm seeking and seeking and, and really busting my butt and I'm having nothing. If I look very closely at my life, my relationships with other people are not right. And I must straighten those out first. And then I ain't got to go looking for God. And it's a beautiful thing, and it's too simple for me, because I'm smart. 
was so smart I almost died. Let's go on that trip into my insides, if you will. Let me describe me to you. I'm an idealist. I've always known how this world ought to be. And I've always known how the people in it ought to be, and I've always known how I ought to be, Ernestine. And the world wasn't, and people weren't, and I wasn't. And I was raised in a family where ought was a big word. Should, ought, supposed to. And I never, ever measured up. I spent 30 years of my life trying so hard to be what I thought I ought to be, I didn't have time to be. And I'm a perfectionist. And what I mean by that is everything's got to be just right, just the way I want it, at any given time, or it upsets me terribly. i got to tell you, this doesn't go away right away. I went in to see my dentist a couple of weeks ago, and I found myself straightening up his magazines. <laughs> uh, not just in a straight line, John. I was straightening by title, date, month, and everything. I can't stand a crooked picture. It drives me crazy. Everything's got to be in its place, and everything's got to be just right. And I've got to be the best at everything that I do. I always had to finish in first place, never second, never third, always on top. Always driving the bus of life, never being content to be a passenger. And perfectionism almost killed me. And some days it still has its way. Because when I'm not the best in my own mind, I'm the worst. And there's no in-between. And it hurts me. And I have to deal with it every day. I'm a hypersensitive human being. Some people don't think alcoholics are sensitive. I'm very sensitive. Hypersensitive means more sensitive than I should be. It means I live on my feelings and very little else. It means don't criticize me. You have said too much. But don't praise me either, because you never say enough. I'm going to get ticked off either way. I like to have an important illness, you know. And some of these shrinks have got names that describe my illness, you know. And I heard one of them say one time that alcoholics are stimulus augmenters. That sounds very important. That's six syllables. So I went up to the man and I said, what is a stimulus augmenter? And he said, it's a person that makes mountains out of molehills who feels things much more deeply than he should feel those things. I said, shut up, Stan. I didn't want to know that much. <laughs> you know, and then there was another psychologist who described us as having cognitive dissonance. And that's really important, so I asked what it was, and it says it means you're always thinking what you don't want to think, and you can't ever think what you do want to think. <laughs> and you're always doing what you don't want to do, and you can't ever seem to do what you do want to do. I told her to hush, too. Then in our book, Alcoholics Anonymous Comes of Age, there's Dr. Harry Tebow, who says, characteristic of a typical alcoholic is a narcissistic, egocentric core dominated by feelings of omnipotence, intent at all costs on maintaining its own inner integrity. Damn, that ain't important. <laughs> and I've learned, much to my sorrow, that all the man said is about eight inches above my navel, there's a spoiled brat sitting in his high chair with a spoon beating on it, saying, do it, and do it now, and do it my way. And I'm a romantic. I dream a great deal. I'm always sitting around dreaming about what I'm going to be when I grow up.
I'd like to say I don't do it anymore, but this is an honest program. I used to sit around, and my dreams went like this. Why couldn't I be someone else, someplace else, doing something else with somebody else? Why do I have to be here now with them doing this? And as a romantic, I, I love music and atmosphere. It's incredible how many times I got drunk on atmosphere. Any of y'all ever do that? I'm not going into the bar to drink. I'm going for the atmosphere. And I love sad music. The sadder, the better. I love the blues. I love country and western, especially Hank Williams. And I used to go and sit down in my favorite chair and get my favorite record by the four freshmen. Get my bottle and sit in the chair for the express purpose of being sad and crying. Did you ever do that? And when the record was over, I'd start it again. I almost wore it out. When I was nine years sober, I found that old record and headed for the record player and started to play it, and my wife went into absolute hysterics. Don't play that damn thing! And as a romantic, I uh, do not believe with the poet that a tree is the most beautiful thing God ever made. I think women are. And I love them. Beautiful women and attractive women. Mediocre women. Ugly women. I woke up with women who looked like they'd been dead for a year. I was down in Texas not long ago, and this guy told me, he said, I woke up with one, some, two that were cowardly ugly. I said, what's cowardly ugly? He said, it means you chew your arm off before you touch them. <laughs> there were a lot of mornings I had two reasons to puke. And with all these characteristics, as far back in my life as I can remember, I was afraid. And I was angry. And I didn't know what I was afraid of, and I didn't know what I was angry at. And there was this great empty space inside of me. And I was thirsty to fill that space. And I spent 30 years of my life running around thirsty trying to quench that god-awful thirst and fill this empty spot in my gut. I was raised by a mother in a very rigid Southern Baptist home. A mother who's a gorgeous lady, a fine lady. A mother who would breathe for me if she could. She'll be 80 years old next month, and I love her. And I love her dearly. And I loved her when I was growing up. But she was a demanding person. And I got messages from her when I was growing up. When I'd come home with the straight A's, that's good, Tommy. But why not A+. Plus? It's always good, son, but there's more. You ought to do this. You ought to do that. It was like my mother never knew me as a person. I was an extension of her. And everything I did was her, Karen, not me. And I love the woman dearly today, but I'm still not a person to her, I don't think. 
when I'm doing what she approves of, she calls me her rock. Her rock. And when I'm doing what she disapproves of, I get the same message I always got. You don't measure up, Tommy. And many times I would like to say to her, Mom, I'm a rock. But I'm also the other. I'm a combination of strength and weakness. I'm a combination of, of love and resentment and all these other feelings. I'm a human being. And I don't know if she'll ever realize that. But God bless her heart. She has helped me to realize it about her. And therein lies the love. When I was a little boy, I wanted to be manly. They call it macho nowadays. And uh, there were a lot of brothers in my dad's family. It was in the age before TV when they were born. He had 12 brothers and sisters. My mom had four of the biggest, manliest brothers you've ever seen in your life. And the one that I always wanted to be like was my Uncle Durwood. And they called him Dud. Now, my Uncle Dud was a motorcycle cop in the days when they wore riding breeches and leather spats up to their knees. And he had a harness across here with silver bullets in it and a big pearl handle 38 set up on his hip. And he squeaked when he walked. And he smelled like gunpowder and shaving lotion. And that's macho. And that's what I wanted to be. Macho. Manly. I was raised as a little man. Tommy, little men do this. Little men don't do this. Little men are never afraid. Little men never do anything wrong. You know, and I had problems with that from the beginning. And I wanted to be like my Uncle Dud, and I lived in a family where my father was a, he was a gorgeous man, beautiful, handsome man. He never got a gray hair in his head until he was over 60. Cold black hair, wavy, beautiful guy. My mom had dark brown hair, my sister had dark brown hair, and I had this great shock of snow white hair. Not blonde, snow white. And all my macho uncles called me Puddinhead. Now, it's hard to be macho, Jeannie, when people call you pudding head. You know that? Even when I was 18 years old, John, my nickname was Sweet Lips. Thank God it was the girls that called me that. And as if that wasn't enough, I didn't think I belonged in this family. I didn't match in any way. They were all dark and I was light. And on top of the shock of snow white hair, I was skinny. I was painfully skinny. And my mother always used to make me wear knickers. Any of you guys have to wear knickers? Brown corduroy knickers. Always brown and always corduroy. And my leg was that big and the knicker hole was that big. I spent half my life pulling up those damn knickers. You know what I mean? And I hid them and threw them away. I did everything with them. <laughs> mother would go back down to Steinberg's department store and buy me another pair of brown corduroy knickers. And I had freckles. Now, I love freckles. Let me explain this. On other people. I didn't like them on me. And I had freckles all over me. I had freckles where people do not have freckles. And I hated them. I hated them with a passion. As a matter of fact, when I looked at me, pudding head, freckle face, skinny, I didn't like me. I was ugly. And I used to figure to myself, if I ever get rid of these freckles, everything's going to be all right. 
Along about the age of 12 or 13, I got rid of them. They were replaced with the most beautiful set of pimples you ever saw in your life. Other kids had acne. I had cysts and boils. I had x-ray treatments on my face. It was so bad. It was diagnosed as acne vulgaris. That means ugly. And I hated them so bad I'd take my dad's razor and I've shaved off the side of my face. What I'm trying to say to you is when I looked at me, I hated what I saw. When I got to this program, I didn't know it, but I hated my guts. I believed I was a bad person. I believed I was worthless. I believed I was totally unlovable. And anyone who ever tried to love me, I found some way to shove them out of my life. I'd pull them in desperately and say, please love me, please love me, and throw them out with this way. And late in my life, in my drinking, I look back on it now. I didn't drink when things were bad. I drank when they were good. We had an old fellow back home used to say, and things got good, and that was bad. And I never understood that until I looked at my own drinking career. Let things get good in my life, and from deep inside me would come this idea, you don't deserve this. You don't deserve this. It was unconscious, and I'd go out and louse it up every single time. If I'm not very careful today, when things are going very well for me, I'm going to find myself messing them up. And it's because of this belief. I'm no good. I started very early seeking, thirsting. Isn't that something, the word thirst? As a matter of fact, Carl Jung said in a letter to Bill Wilson, the alcoholic's craving for alcohol is the equivalent on a low level of our natural thirst for union with God. And I always believed in God. Always did. There's never been a time I did not believe in God. But again, I didn't think he believed in me. I didn't think he could care about me. I was too bad. When I was nine years old, I was in that Baptist church one Sunday morning, and something happened to me, and it was fantastic. And I said to myself, this is it. This is what I've been looking for. This is going to fill up the space, and momentarily the space inside was filled. And I went up to the altar. And I joined the church. And a week later, they took me down in the baptismal pool and they dunked me under the water and it wasn't it. It wasn't it. It didn't last. I did everything when I was a kid perfectly. I was disgustingly perfect. All the other mothers would say to their little boys, why aren't you like Tommy? They'd point me out. I was the example. I excelled at everything that I did. Later on in my life, this was to carry over. I hated me so bad, Anita, that you had to love me. I could not feel worthwhile in and of myself. Therefore, you had to approve of me. I went through college, majored in philosophy and history, minored in religion and Greek and English, and carried a 3.94 average. I was elected to who's who among students in American universities and colleges, had my own combo, founded the dance band at this college, was chaplain of the faculty senate, president of my class, had so many scholarships soloists with the college choir, so many scholarships when I graduated, the college owed me $16. 
but I was drunk 75% of the time. See, I've got this memory, and I could take good notes in class. And when the test came along, I could match the notes in my mind to the questions on the test. And there was no problem. I was a good test taker. I learned almost nothing. When I was 15 years old, I was up in Greensboro, North Carolina, at a high school music festival. And I was with some older, more experienced men. These guys were 17, 18 years old. They'd been around. And I think about the bunch I used to run with, John. They had funny names to begin with. You know, one of them was called Ducky. One of them was called Junk. And then there was Boots. And then there was Egghead. And Egghead was the wisest one in this bunch. And they called a cab driver, and he came up to the hotel room, and he had in his hand a bottle of brown liquid, and the label said, Cream of Kentucky. I shall never forget it. And I said to Egghead, what do we do with this stuff? And he says, Tommy, you drink a water glass of it as fast as you can. Then you drink a water glass full of water. And he said, you keep on doing that, you're going to feel good. And I walked in front of the bathroom mirror and watched myself take my first drink. I can picture it in my mind now. And I said to myself, this is it. For the first time in my life, the world was what it ought to be. People were what they ought to be. I was what I ought to be. There was a warmth to it. There was a happiness in it. There was a complete attitude change. It changed the way that I looked at things. It was absolute magic. Alcohol did for me what I had always been taught in the Sunday school that God did. And it became the dominant value in my life. As a matter of fact, that night, everybody else got sick and passed out. And when they'd all gotten sick and passed out, I called the cab driver. I gave him seven and a half, and I got me a pint of cream of Kentucky. I had found the answer, or so I thought. And I blacked out that first night. And by the age of 16 and 17, I was a regular attender at the Wake County Jail in Raleigh, North Carolina. By age 23, I'd had over a thousand stitches taken in my face alone as a result of drinking. I'd been in jails. I'd been in psycho ward. I'd been in religious homes for alcoholics. That's a trip. You haven't heard anything until you've heard a bunch of alcoholics testify. And the treatment in this one home I was in, Don, was preaching on Tuesday night and Thursday night and Saturday night and Sunday morning and Sunday night. And on Sunday, no one ate until everybody testified. It was like a big game of can you top this. We had a gospel quartet at this religious home for alcoholics. It was a good one, too. We sang in all the churches in the area, raising money for the home. We called ourselves the Four Roses. And by the time I was 23, I was in a world of trouble. World of trouble. I was being the kind of person I never wanted to be. I was thinking the kind of thoughts I never wanted to think. I was living the kind of life that deepened the self-hate. And the only relief I ever had was when I was just right with that booze, just right with it. That experience was so valuable to me 
that when I'd get out of jail, get sick, and get well, a little monkey would pop up on my shoulder and say, anybody can have one drink, Tom. Anybody can have just one. The idea that someday, somehow, if I just handled it right, I was going to be able to get that effect of alcohol without the side effects and after effects became the dominating lie in my life. And I believed it over and over and over again, this lie. My first exposure to Alcoholics Anonymous was when I was 23 years old. I went into Alcoholics Anonymous, the intellectual Baptist, knowing, of course, all there was to know. And the first meeting I went to, there was a plaque on one side that had 12 steps on it, and on another side there were 12 traditions, and there was a man up front who had a blue book in front of him. And the great mind went to work, and the great mind said, that's where you want to be, up front. And all you have to do is memorize those steps and memorize those traditions and memorize that book, and they'll put you up front and they'll listen to you talk. You ought to be president of Alcoholics Anonymous within six months. And so I memorized the steps and I memorized the traditions. And I can quote great portions of this book to you. I don't have to anymore. Thank God. But if you're ever in a book discussion with me, don't misquote it. And they put me up front, and they listened to me talk. And I delivered some of the windiest dissertations on theology and epistemology and ontology and philosophy and various other kinds of bull that you've ever heard in your life. All I couldn't do was stay sober. I'm a living example that self-knowledge will not fix it. No kind of knowledge is going to fix it. I knew everything that was in here to know, it seemed. I was that close to the switch, and I could not reach it. I heard Chuck say one time, I stood there and it was like the turtles of life were passing me by like they were riding motorcycles. And I wondered why. Everybody else going right for the switch, flipping it, staying sober for good. I'm that close. I know a lot more than they, they do, and I cannot reach the switch. And for the next seven years, the longest I ever stayed dry was 89 days. Knowledge won't fix it. I wasn't trying not to be sober. I was trying to be sober. With all my heart, I was trying to be sober. I used to go to a group up in Burlington, North Carolina, while I was in college, and this group was so traditional, everybody had a seat. Do you all know groups like that? You go there tonight, Burlington, North Carolina, leaned against the wall will be Barney, second chair, first row will be Jim, fourth row, fourth chair is empty. It belongs to Martha. She's been dead 14 years. Nobody sits in her chair. I'm talking traditional now. And over on the right-hand side of that room, second row, second chair from the wall, sat the meanest man that God ever made. And his name was Bill C., and I called him Grumpy, and I hated his guts. And I hated his guts because he always told me the truth. It was like he had x-ray vision. He could see right through me. 
And he always pointed his finger at me and he always called me boy. And he talked in circles. You know how these old timers talk in circles, John? He'd walk up to me and he'd say, boy, you don't think your way into good living, you live your way into good thinking. I'd think, shut up, dummy, I know that. And boy, the good Lord gave you two ears and one mouth. Does that mean anything to you? And the one I always loved the best, <laughs> or hated the worst, was, boy, how come you always run around looking for God? He ain't lost. <laughs> and during this time, I was looking for God. I was still thirsty. Over in North Carolina, we give a red poker chip for 90 days of sobriety. God, I wanted one. I wanted one so bad that I've been up after meetings and stolen one out of the chip box. Truth. And I got a calendar, and I, I got all my willpower up, and I pasted one of those red chips on the 90th day. In 89 days, I stayed dry, and I'd mark each day off as I came home. And on the 90th day, I rested. And I'd sit in my den and I'd, I'd read books by the men of God. The Confessions of St. Augustine's, one of my favorites. Plato's Dialogues. Martin Buber's I and Thou. Paul Tillich's Dynamics of Faith. Thomas Kempis' Imitation of Christ. And I'd sit in the lotus position and meditate and wait for my spiritual awakening to happen. <laughs> See, I'm a terminal Baptist. I know what a spiritual awakening is. It's lighting up a bush for Moses. It's knocking Paul off a jackass. And I figured God could give me one lightning bolt. I can see him now. You think God don't have a sense of humor? Look back at your behavior. <laughs> I can see God now looking at me and say, there he is again. The dummy. Waiting for his lightning bolt. I've got plenty of lightning bolts. Be glad to give him one. But he wouldn't like the color. After I knew there was an answer, my suffering increased tenfold. And I was really convinced. I'm different. AA works for everybody, but it's not going to work for me. I'm different. I must be a psychopath. I must be a sociopath. I must want to be one of those who's constitutionally incapable of being honest with himself. I believed it. And I went after the only thing that put any meaning in my life. I kept drinking. And when I was 30 years old, I died. And I mean that just like I say it. To me, this program is a program of death, rebirth, and regeneration. I came to on July 20th, 1965. And three ideas came into my mind, and they were so clear they give me the chills when I think about them today. And the first idea was, Tom, you can't drink. 
And the second idea was, Tom, you can't quit drinking either. And the third one was, you're going to die. Now, Grumpy was somewhat of a prophet. I used to call people when it was too late to help me. I was a test pattern drunk. When the test pattern came on TV and the booze ran out, I wanted help. And I called Grumpy one night like this, and before I could say a word, he said, Boy, don't you ever call me again, drunk. He said, As a matter of fact, don't you ever call me again. He said, If you want to get sober, you know where we meet, and don't call me to come get you. He said, You can walk. And he said, Frankly, Tom, I don't care if you ever get sober. It's one of the most loving things that's ever been done to me in my entire life. I didn't think so at the time, but I bless him for it now. He started me going down toward bottom. And when I realized I couldn't drink, I couldn't quit, and I was going to die, I was on five years probation with a two-year active road sentence hanging over my head. I was never supposed to drive in the state of North Carolina again. I was absolutely broke. I was a young college professor about to lose his job. You know how I got back to AA, huh? I walked. And I got to tell you something here that I believe with all my heart. I can argue with my mind. I can play games with my mind. I cannot argue with my body. My body's like an internal psychiatrist. When it wants me to stop, I'll stop. And if I don't stop, it'll make me sick and I'll stop. If it wants me to sleep, I'll sleep. And I really believe if it wants me to get well, I'll get well. Because i got to tell you something. While I was walking to that AA meeting, my mind was saying to me, It won't work. It won't work. You have tried AA. But my feet were taking me straight to that meeting. James Taylor's a musician from over in North Carolina. Some of you know his music. There's a line in one of his songs that says, I guess my feet know where they want me to go. And they did. And I went to meetings late and I left early. I didn't speak to anyone. I figured nobody wanted to speak to me. But I kept going. Grumpy was to later tell me when I was 17 years sober... Boy, I used to think there was a chance for all drunks, and then along you came. Boy, the only thing you ever did right was you kept coming back. And I kept coming back. And after a while, I noticed this man in the group, and he had good eyes. A lot of things I didn't like about him. I was kind of afraid of him, too, but he had good eyes. If you want to see an alcoholic sober up, watch his or her eyes. God's beautiful. And I went up to this man and I said, I want to stay sober. I need some help. You know what he said to me? He said, boy, I have heard about you. They tell me you're crazy. But he says, I'll help you on one condition. And I said, what's that? He said, we'll do it my way. And I said, yes, sir, please. And he said, it's all in that book. And he said, the first thing I want you to do 
is I want you to go to meetings early and shake everybody's hand and ask them how they're doing. And I said, I don't want to go to meetings early. I don't want to shake everybody's hand, and I don't care how they're doing. And why do I have to do that? And he said, Tom, you don't ask me why. You do what I tell you to do. He preached at me. Effort, result. Effort, result. Tom, you don't understand the life of the Spirit and then live it. You live it, and then you might understand it. And I went to meetings early, and I shook hands, and it was a sight. I looked at shoe tops, folks, and I mumbled. And after a few weeks, I saw some ankles. And I saw some shins and some thighs. My voice was clearing up. Then I saw some hips. saw some nice hips. And then the magic of this program. I was looking them in the eye. I was glad to see them. I did care how they were doing. And God, the enormity of it. So did they. I was in, man. And the reason I couldn't reach the switch is because no human being can reach it by himself. But with the we, I got that switch. And I've been holding that sucker ever since. sponsor worked me. I didn't have to worry about where I was going at night. That car would pull up outside the house. I was going to a meeting. The phone rang at 3 o'clock in the morning. I was going on a 12-step call. Never will forget the first one he took me on. The guy sitting there about to shake to death, and I went running in on the call. I said, what do I say? And my sponsor said to me, you don't say nothing because you don't know nothing. Sit down and shut up. And he let me talk a little bit, and he smoked these big cigars, you know, and when he'd wave the cigar, I was done. That was it. That was the signal. He'd wave it, and I'd sit down. And it's dawning on me how much I love that man right now. His biggest job was holding me by the seat of the pants and saying, no, son, you're not ready for that yet. You see, I wanted to work this program, bang, 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 bang. Get it done. Get it over with. I'd always done everything that way. Go right for the top. Become Mr. A.A. He'd hold me by the seat of the pants and say, you're not ready for that. I said, I got all these problems. He said, I know you got all these problems. Don't drink and go to meetings. Because he knew what I didn't know, that that's all I was capable of doing. Talking about me and Mr. A.A., when I got to listen to Chuck's tapes and I found out he was considered the best speaker in A.A., I said to myself, not for long, baby. I wanted to be him. I did. I wanted to be him. And I was up in Toronto when I'd been sober a number of years, and a guy came up to me and said, I don't see why you keep quoting Chuck. You're a better speaker than he is. And I almost put his teeth down his throat. And the last time I sat out and talked to Chuck, John was in Abilene, Texas. And he talked and he talked and he talked, and I loved him. God, I loved him. And he said, okay, son, your turn. What you got to say for yourself? I said, I don't want to be you anymore. He said, you mean you're satisfied being just you? I said, I sure am. He said, hallelujah. And we both cried. 
And I started getting sober. And I started working these steps. And the steps, I didn't realize it, were putting the old self to death. I mean that just like I say. When it says in this program after the third step that we were reborn, that's not a six-letter, two-syllable word to me. That's the truth. It means I start all over, and what's more, it means I start as an infant, not a grown human being. And it means that as an infant, I've got to have a cradle. I've got to be nurtured, cuddled. My diapers have got to be changed. I've got to be burped. And that's what the AA group does. The AA group was my cradle. My sponsor was my mother-father image. The ego was deflated in those first three steps. All the wind was knocked out of it. In the fourth step, I was supposed to go looking for the answer to one question, basically, to me. What in the world has been the matter with me? And I began to move toward other people. I was being regenerated. Made all over again. How about that? I'm not the same. I'm not the same person I was yesterday. And it tells me after the ninth step in this program that I have now entered the world of the Spirit. And to me, that's a very simple three-letter word. Now. That's where God is. When he lit up that bush for Moses, he said something very important to me. He said, I am totally present. Always present. I don't believe God has a memory. And I just walked past. I'm not the same. I have three of the most beautiful children you've ever seen. My son's named Jason. I learn a lot from children. I love children. Children are much closer to God than we are. I kind of moved away as I got older. Seems to me one of the objects of this program is to move back. It's no accident to me that the spiritual teacher said, unless you become as a little child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And my son was a potty chair philosopher. You've heard of armchair philosophers. He was a potty chair philosopher when he was little. And he used to say astounding things to me. Do you listen to children? If you don't, please do. They know things. And I'm sitting there with him one night when he was sitting on his potty because he always wanted somebody there with him to talk to and listen to. And out of his mouth came these words. Hey, Dad, Jesus turns the power on. Now, I'm not here to preach Jesus even though it is Sunday morning I'm Baptist. But can you imagine that? Out of a child? I said, how do you know that? Did your mom tell you that? He said, no, sir. I said, you learned that in Sunday school? He said, no, sir. I said, well, how do you know such a thing? He said, I just know. That's why. You know, there's a part of me that knows everything it's ever going to have to know. Knows exactly where to turn in times of trouble. And there is in you, too. Because do you remember the last time you were coming down 
and you were hurting beyond hurt, and there was pain beyond pain, and you knew all the stops were out, and you were going to die left alone. Did you hear yourself cry out the equivalent of three words, God help me? Did you? How'd you know that? You think about that? Uh-uh. That's what I call the knower. Part of God that lives inside. So I started listening to my kid. We were sitting on the couch one night, and he turns to me. He says, hey, Dad. He said, why don't I be the dad for a while, and you be the son? I said, how are we going to work that out? He said, it's simple. He said, I'll grow up and be the father. You grow down and be the son. To this day, that's the best description of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous I have ever heard in my life. Growing down to be a child of God. I haven't wanted a drink in a long time. I'm still thirsty, but I'm filled. That seems like a contradiction. But you see, I'm the kind of person who, if I found something good, always wanted more. And that's exactly what I found in this program. It's a good. I just want more and more and more. I'm totally addicted to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I say that with no shame. I'm totally addicted to the people in it and to the God behind it and underlying it and undergirding it. And there's one thing good about this addiction. Ain't no way I can OD on Alcoholics Anonymous. Man, it's built for people like me who want to reach the top, get it all over with, and move on to something else. There is no top here. That's a beautiful thing. It exasperates me sometimes. I'm 20 years sober, and I hear somebody three months sober say something I ought to say because I'm 20 years sober. I've still got this God-awful drive to be a success, to be competitive. To be tops. My daily work. But I'm not the same. This dad, who I always considered weak, because he was a quiet man and a shy man, non combative kind of man. And I adored him. I always did. He used to do very important things with me. He'd take me out in the woods for long walks. He had me drive an old 36 Chevrolet when I was 12 years old. He'd prop me up on two pillows and say, okay, son, take her. We'd walk through the woods, and there's one message I always got from this man. He didn't know scientific names of trees or anything like that, but the message I got from him was, isn't it beautiful? Isn't it fantastic what God has given us? Isn't it a work of art? All of it. And he taught me how to skip rocks across the water. I can skip some rocks. But see, my mother ran things, and I figured my daddy was weak. As I grew in this program, I found out he was not weak. He was gentle and kind and simple. A deacon in the Baptist church for 55 years. Taught one Sunday school class, led to singing in two more. One of the best workers you've ever seen in your life. And I had the opportunity to be with him while he died. 
and it was long, and it was painful, and it was ugly. In the morning before he died, something happened. He had always loved me, probably more than he should have. When I was 18 years old, I remember him telling me he loved me and taking me to the bus to leave for the Air Force so I wouldn't have to go to jail. And while he was telling me how much he loved me, Anita had his hand on my butt, pushing me up the steps in that bus. I was about to kill him, driving him and Mom crazy. And the morning before he died, he turned over and looked at me, and God help me, I'll never forget this. He said, son, am I going to die? And I said, yes, sir. And son, does that frighten you? And he said, yeah. He said, but I learned a long time ago, when you're afraid, you give your fear to God and go on about your business. And he said, son, you got to take I love you. You are one of the finest men I have ever known. Same father, same son. Something changed. It was me. Why? Because he's smart. Because of grace. The grace that's come to me through this program, the grace that surrounds me every day. I'm into the habit of watching. Recommend it to you. I watch what happens around me every day. I watch in, in particular for the good things that happen for me that I don't have anything to do with. The good things that happen for me and to me that I couldn't bring about. The right phone call, the right letter, the right words, the right look, the right hug, the right kiss. It is fantastic. You can see God's grace. You can take note of it. And you can realize, fully realize, He loves me. God, how He loves me. The kids love me. They say to me, uh, Dad, you're the finest dad in the whole world. You know what I tell them, John? Ain't it the truth? And underneath, always underneath. Thank you, God. I'm not ugly anymore. I ain't pretty either. I don't hate me. I'm not a bad person. I'm worthwhile. What was once my curse is now my blessing. My alcoholism. There's an ancient spiritual teaching that says, if you honor your enemy, he becomes your ally. I honor my alcoholism. It's given purpose and meaning to my life. All that there is. And I love it. I love every minute of it. It's great. It's free. I used to think that freedom meant isolation. Being able to handle anything by myself. And I've learned today that freedom is not that at all. Freedom is my knowing how to depend on you and how to let you depend on me. And 
It's depending on God and allowing Him to depend on me. Fantastic awakening for me was realizing one day, I need God, yes, but He needs me. Who else is going to do the teaching and the doctrine and the central office running and the 12 step and if we don't do it? How does it make you feel? Do wonders for your self-esteem to know that you're necessary, not just to other people, you're necessary to the one power in this universe. Great. And to tell you the truth, I kind of like me. I think I'm okay. And as long as I stay in this program, I'm going to be okay. I'm not frustrated at all right now this morning by being common, nor by being alcohol. Now, I love music. I love James Taylor. I love Chris Christopherson, our poets. And there's a new one. There's a kid who lives down in Rock Hill, South Carolina. His name is Ed Kilburn. And he writes good stuff. And there's one of his songs in particular that I like that I'd like to close with. And it's a dialogue that he has with friends. And I can imagine this dialogue. I'm having it with my three children and with my mother, if you will. And let me share this with you. But Daddy, why aren't you famous? Well, Christy, I think I am. Because all of the people you see here today came out here to give me a hand. But their applause isn't what really matters. It's what I can feel from their hearts. And if today I made dreamers of some who had lost them or made friends with a few who were scared, or if there's one new believer who came here a critic, and I told him that somebody cared. And Christy, I always feel famous. Though I am not seen on TV, I get all the attention my ego can handle doing this live and for free. I do it live and for free. Daddy, why are you lonely? Well, Francis, I guess I am, because there are a few people who aren't here today who are not here to give me a hand. But you know, in some ways they're closer than the people out on my front row. And if, I can if I'm quiet, I can hear Bob's new heart-beating rhythm and Grumpy playing guitar. And there are preachers and poets that I never met, like Bill Wilson, who hasn't gone far. So I'm alone, but I'm not really lonely. I just have a group you can't see. They give me all the companionship my faith can handle doing this talking with me. They do this talking. But, Daddy, I think you're crazy. Well, Jason, that's what keeps me sane. I was born with a strange sense of humor to go with a strong sense of pain. And I found that there's nothing so serious that it can't hold its own in a joke. So I might smile at stories about people suffering and laugh about losing my cat. And make people think I give talks without answers because I tease them and hide where they're at. But I also sing songs about rainbows. And a smile is the last thing you'll see on the face of this crazy old outlaw. Laughing out loud because I'm me. I laugh like this because I'm free. And then mother. But Tommy, do you love Jesus?
Well, Mother, doesn't it show? She said, I've been listening to you for an hour, and frankly, I've got to say no. Because if you did, you'd be famous. Big churches and Christian TV. You'd be so well known that you'd never get lonely, you'd never get crazy or weird. But you got to give up making talks without answers, and you ought to shave off that old beard. I said, well, I love you too, Mother. But you sure found it different than me. You see, I do my best, and I do it like Jesus, and he did it live and for free. 